Well, good morning. So glad to have you with us here this weekend. Although this Easter we're not going to be meeting here at the physical building, I feel like we have even a greater opportunity. As our service is going online, currently between eight and 11,000 people have access to our service every weekend, but I've wondered what would happen if it were 100,000? As we spread the word, as we send the link to other people to join us on Easter Sunday. So please take advantage of this unique opportunity we have to, to spread the word about the gospel going out on Easter Sunday, really all over the world. I believe that I have had at least five brushes with death. There have been at least five times that I feel like I could have lost my life if things had turned out just a little bit differently. For example, last week I shared a story of how I was mugged and I was stabbed in Columbus, Ohio. I realized that that story could have turned out very, very differently. It's possible I could have lost my life that day. And yet I'm convinced that God saved me. I couldn't prove it to anyone else, but I'm convinced that on that occasion, God saved me. There have been other occasions like that in my life. I remember a time, for example, when I was up in some fields near Cooper's Rock. Cooper's Rock is a park that's located about 10 miles from the church up in the mountains. It's a park, though, that's kind of known for its rattlesnakes and copperheads. And one day I was going for a walk, and I was a couple miles from the park. I was walking along this path that I think had been put there by the electric company. It was about two feet wide, and I just kept walking and walking and walking. Eventually, the path became more and more narrow, and suddenly it was about 12 inches, and soon it was about eight inches wide, and eventually the path disappeared. And so I decided to turn around. I'd walked enough. I literally took one step, and there it was. There was a copperhead that was just coiled and lying there right in the middle of the path, and it looked kind of relaxed, actually. I could tell that it had been there the whole time. And to this day, I cannot figure out how I managed to walk over that copperhead without stepping on it. You know, copperheads have kind of bulky bodies. And, and my gait is not real wide. And, and I just thought, what, what would have happened had I stepped on that copperhead? Now, I'm convinced I may have died, not because there aren't serums in this state. You know, if you get bitten by a snake, there is some remedy at a hospital but I was so far away from the park and getting back would have been strenuous because I was downhill and it was an almost completely uphill walk and the poison probably would have gone through my body. I'm not sure I would have made it. And yet I am convinced that God saved me on that occasion. And there have been other occasions. Many of you are familiar with what happened around Thanksgiving in the Christmas time this past year where I found out that my appendix had turned gangrene. And I had had a stomachache for maybe four days. I did nothing about it. And in the meantime, the poison, I think, was going through my body. And finally, I went to the doctor. And the doctor said repeatedly, this could have turned out differently. He talked about the fact that people die from what I had. And, and multiple times, he said, you're not out of the water yet. And yet, I think God saved me. And there have been many of these occasions. I think of an accident that I was almost in that could have made the difference between life and death. I was 17 years old at the time. I was driving for a company in the Chicago area and I was crossing this highway about four or five lanes. And at the time, there were no cars as I was kind of crossing over. 
But I was lost at the time and I looked down at this map to try to find my directions when suddenly these cars came barreling down me from behind. On the other side of the hill, I wasn't aware of the fact that there was a, a light and it had turned green and these people were going 55 and 65 miles an hour, speeding over that hill and suddenly I hear these screeching sounds in my, my ears and I look in my rearview mirror and I watched as this car behind me I think it was a Corvette, did a 180, literally did a 180 right behind me. And I saw all these other cars screeching to a halt. And I just waited to be hit. I just waited for the impact, but it didn't happen. Everything stopped for a moment. I looked around and saw cars facing in all the different directions. Nobody had hit anybody. Now, I can't prove to you that God saved me that day, either from harm or even from death itself. But I'm convinced that that's the case. And I suspect many of you have had similar incidents. Many of you have had occasions where you're convinced that God spared you. God saved you either from harm or maybe God saved you from death itself. And you can't prove it to anyone else, but you know it's true. I think God loves to save people. I think God loves to save us in a physical sense. He just loves intervening sometimes and saving us, but I think even more important, he loves saving us in a spiritual sense. Now, when the Bible uses the word save, the word is a word that simply means to be delivered. And spiritual salvation means to be delivered from the penalty of your sin. But I think it's more than that. It's not just being delivered from the penalty of our sin, it's being delivered to something else, delivered into the family of God delivered into eternal life. And so we're saved from the penalty, delivered from the penalty of our sin and delivered to eternal life. And God loves to save people. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy wrote, God our Savior wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I love that description of God. He's called God our Savior, God our Deliverer, and he wants everyone to be delivered and saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Luke writes about Jesus in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. It was Jesus' purpose for coming to this earth that he might deliver us who are spiritually lost and bring us to a place where we would be found. Now today we want to continue our series titled Out of the Shadows. It's a series about the stories leading up to the Easter story. So many of those stories took place at night. Or even the crucifixion which happened during the day took place during the darkness. For three hours, darkness reigned over the earth. And I think that physical darkness mirrored the spiritual darkness that surrounded the whole scene of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And some might conclude in reading some of the stories that evil was winning, that darkness was overcoming. And yet in truth, even in the midst of the darkness, often a light was shining. And oftentimes after the darkness of night, there's the dawn of a new day. Today I'd like to look at the stories of two different individuals related to the Easter story who were both saved, who were both delivered. One was delivered in a physical sense. He was someone who was destined to be crucified himself, I believe, and yet he was set free. He was allowed to live because of Jesus. The second one experienced a spiritual salvation. 
He wasn't spared from physical death, but he was given the promise of eternal life, which is infinitely better. My takeaway today, therefore, is this, that we can be saved because Jesus chose not to save himself. We can be saved, we can be delivered because Jesus chose not to deliver himself. And make no mistake about it, nobody took Jesus' life from him. Jesus offered it up willingly. He did not have to die, he chose to die. And because of that, two people that we're gonna read about here this morning were set free. They were allowed to live. One received physical life and the other eternal life. Let's look at our first story and give, let me give you the context of the story. Jesus had gone through so far five trials up to this point in the story. He had stood before Annas, who was the high priest, and Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, which was like the supreme court in Jesus' day, 70 leaders or elders of Israel. And he'd been condemned by all of them in all three of those trials. And then he had had two more trials before the civic leaders. He stood before Pilate, and then he stood before Herod. And the story we're gonna look at involves the sixth trial where he's standing once again before Pilate. The story is found in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 15, where we read, at the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. The festival here, by the way, is the Passover. Verse 16, at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas, so when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, who is it that you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Messiah? For he knew they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. The chief priests and elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called Messiah? They answered, crucify him. Then he said, why, what has he done wrong? But they kept shouting, crucify him all the more. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Now, when you put together the different gospel accounts, you learn some things about this Barabbas guy. You learn that he was arrested for a revolt that he had been involved most likely in a revolt against the Romans. A scholar by the name of Elwell writes about it. It's not unlikely that Barabbas was a member of the Zealots, a Jewish political group which sought to throw off the yoke of Rome by violence. The word translated robber can denote either a bandit or a revolutionary. And in the case of Barabbas, it was a revolutionary. He was a part of a group that is kind of like some groups that we have even in this country. There are some out there even today who have this idea that they need to take over the government by force. And that's what this guy was doing. He thought he would break the grip of Rome by force. But in the process, we know from the other gospels that he actually was guilty of murder. Now he was arrested therefore and he deserved 
to hang on a cross. Now, I can't prove this, but I suspect that the two guys on either side of Jesus were cohorts of Barabbas, that that third cross was initially meant for Barabbas. Whether that's true or not, Jesus chose to offer himself up instead. Now you say, wait a minute, no, Pilate was the one who did that. No, Jesus, he offered himself up to die. He's the one that willingly volunteered to go to the cross in our place and for our sin. And so Pilate comes out and offers a choice to the crowd, which one should be released? Which gets me to my illust- or an illustration of my point this morning, that we can be saved because Jesus did not save himself. There's some interesting things about Barabbas that are worth noting. First of all, that his full name was likely Jesus Barabbas. My Bible, which is the Holman's Christian Standard Version of the Bible, and others of yours might have this note as well, they have a footnote by Barabbas' name which indicates that some of the ancient Greek manuscripts indicate that his full name was actually Jesus Barabbas. If that was the case, you have a situation where you've got two Jesuses being presented before the crowd. Which one do you want? The one who is guilty of murder and guilty of crimes who's called a criminal or the other who is innocent. Pilate was offering one for the other. The other thing that's interesting about Barabbas is that his very name means son of the father. That's what the word Barabbas means. And so you realize Barabbas was a son of the father. But of course, this is what Jesus was arrested for, claiming to be the son of the heavenly father. And so once again, the two are put side by side. And in a very real sense, both were revolutionaries as well, although Jesus' revolution was a spiritual one and Barabbas' one was a physical one. Put yourself for a moment, though, in Barabbas' shoes. Consider that you were part of this failed revolt, that in the process, people had lost their lives, that you had been arrested and you were just waiting for the death sentence to be carried out against you. And then suddenly, Pilate comes forward And he says, it's our habit to release one of you on the Passover. I've got two criminals here, Jesus and Barabbas. Which one do you want? And suddenly, they shout Barabbas. And in a moment's time, this guy ends up being set free. A scholar by the name of Dr. A.F. Walls writes about this. Barabbas became an exemplification of the effects of substitutionary atonement. He exemplified the effects of substitutionary atonement. The word atonement has the idea of our sins being covered or forgiven. And it's due based on a substitution that took place. One was substituted for the other. Jesus, the righteous one, being substituted for the other. I find it noteworthy, by the way, that this practice, this Jewish practice of releasing someone during the season of Passover is also the same picture here. I won't get into the story, but the Passover celebrated an event that had happened centuries earlier involving the people of Israel just before they were released from slavery. God had sent plagues upon the Israelites, and the last one was the worst one of all. The firstborn son in every household would die. But Moses told the people, if you want to be spared death, if you want to live, you need to take 
a lamb, a year old lamb that's perfect without any blemishes and you need to shed its blood and apply the blood to the door of your house on the top and the two sides. Then when the angel of death passes through the land, he'll pass over that house and everyone inside will live. And somehow this had become a tradition in Jesus' day that on this Passover, someone would be released. Someone that was sentenced to die would be set free. And it was all because of this innocent lamb. And of course, we know Jesus was the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who had committed no sin himself, dying for the sins of the world. But let's look at this second story. Leading up to Luke 23, where we find our second story, Jesus was flogged, he was beaten, a crown of thorns had been pressed upon his head, he had been forced to carry his cross to to Gethsemane, although along the way he collapsed under the weight of it and someone had to carry it the rest of the way. He was then nailed to the cross and he was put up there with a criminal on each side and that's where this story begins, Jesus finding himself between two criminals on the cross. Luke 23 and verse 32. Two other criminals were also led to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching and even the leaders kept scoffing. He saved others, let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him, this is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Luke notes that there were three different groups who said the same thing to Jesus mocking him. All three groups said, save us, save yourself, save yourself. But the religious leaders, the way they worded it was very ironic. The religious leaders put it this way, he saved others, let him save himself. Why is that ironic? Because if Jesus had saved himself, he couldn't save others. That this was part of the plan. And it gets to my takeaway again. We can be saved because Jesus chose not to save himself. The very reason that others could be saved is because he chose not to deliver himself. But let's look at this dialogue a little bit more closely between the criminals, beginning in verse 39 again of Luke 23. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This phrase, by the way, yell insults, is the Greek word for blasphemy. He was committing blasphemy against Jesus. Verse 40. But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And he said to him, I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. I love the fact that one of the last things that Jesus did before he died was to give this person life, to save one last soul. Now, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that I believe that there are three things that are essential for a person to understand if they're to begin a relationship with God. Those three things are, first of all, they have to understand that the problem is sin. And sin just means to miss the mark. All of us have missed the mark with God and all of us have a sin problem. The second point is that the solution is Jesus. That for a person to get right with God, they need to understand the solution is Jesus because of who he was, the Son of God and God the Son, and because of what he did. He died in our place and for our sin. And then the response God is looking for, the third ingredient here, is faith. The response God is looking for is we put our trust in Jesus to be our Savior. Well, I see all three elements in this story. First of all, that the problem is sin. Sin is the thing, of course, that keeps us from a relationship with a holy God. Heaven's a perfect place. We're not perfect people. There's a gap between us and our creator. We all have a sin problem. Now, there were criminals hanging on either side of Jesus. And one of the gospels indicates that initially both criminals were mocking Jesus. But then a change took place in the heart of one of them. At a certain point, one of the criminals saw things differently. And he looked over at the other criminal and he said, don't you fear God? He said, we are here because we're guilty. We have committed crimes and sins and this is why we're in this situation. But this one over here, he has not. He hasn't committed anything wrong. Don't you fear God knowing you're about to meet him? It's a sobering thought when you realize that this one criminal was getting ready to die and getting ready to meet his creator and yet even to the very end, he did not have a humble heart to recognize his spiritual condition. I have, by the way, met several people that even toward the end of their lives still were not willing to acknowledge God, were not willing to acknowledge their condition, their problem, their situation. But at a certain point, one of these guys saw it and he realized, I know I'm a sinner, I've got a problem and he changed his heart. I suspect, by the way, it happened with the three hours of darkness. He came to understand this was no, no ordinary man. But the problem is sin. Second, the solution is Jesus because of who he is and what he came to do. Somehow, this second guy, this criminal on the cross who turned to Jesus, realized that this person was able to save him, that he was different. Somehow he realized that Jesus was an eternal ruler. Now again, I don't know how he came to this understanding, but you realize that all three of them are dying the same kind of death. Death is gonna claim the lives of all of them, but at a certain point, this guy looks over at Jesus and he says, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And in that moment, he was acknowledging that Jesus was a king he certainly recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. I suspect that he even realized that Jesus was divine, that he was God. If he knew the Daniel passage from the Old Testament, he might have understood all of that. And so he turned next to Jesus who was dying on the cross next to him. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? He may have even understood this idea, that Jesus was the Passover lamb the one who shed his blood for us so that those who apply his blood in a symbolic sense to the door of our heart will receive eternal life, will live just like they did in the Old Testament. 
but the solution is Jesus, and he understood that. And third, the response God's looking for is trust or faith. I want you to consider for a moment the absolute faith that's revealed in this question that this criminal asked Jesus. Think of the faith that was behind it. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knew, he knew Jesus, who Jesus was. He understood, and he dared make a request, a simple request. And Jesus responded to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. The word paradise actually in the Greek language referred to an enclosed park or garden. In fact, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, that Jesus would have actually used the Garden of Eden is called paradise. It's the same word. In the Old Testament, if someone died who was a righteous person who put their trust in Christ or in God and his Messiah, that person, when they died, they did not go directly to heaven. They went to a place called paradise. And it appears that paradise was a compartment of Sheol or Hades, the place of the dead. Everyone, when they died, they went to Hades or Sheol, But we know from Luke chapter 17 or 16 that there were two compartments in Sheol. One was called paradise and the other one was a place of suffering. And so when believers died, they went down to paradise. Dr. Vincent notes about this. In Jewish theology, it's the department of Hades where the blessed souls await resurrection and therefore equivalent to Abraham's bosom. It's where even Abraham was and the Old Testament believers were. Now, the reason they were in paradise and not in heaven is because their sins had not yet been removed. Jesus had not yet died and been buried and raised again from the dead. The payment had not yet been made. Now, I believe when Jesus rose again from the dead that, in a sense, paradise was emptied and believers went up to heaven. And I think we have a a hint of this in one of the Gospels where we read after the resurrection that righteous people of the past who had died were seen around Jerusalem. I think it was a picture of the fact that they had been set free from paradise. And now, as Paul said, when we die, death is present, being present with God. And so God promised this guy, today you'll be with me in paradise. I want you to note, though, the, the condition that he was given this promise. It was simply... A question, it was just asking. Jesus didn't say, well, if you get your life together or if you make it through this, if you start serving me, if you start going to church, it was simply believing. Jesus offered eternal life to this guy as a free gift. It was something that was received simply through the asking. And so the problem is sin. The solution's Jesus because he was God in the flesh, which by the way, that's essential Because for him to pay the penalty for your sin and mine, he had to be sinless himself. I can't die for your sins. I can't pay the penalty for what you've done wrong. I've got my own sins, but Jesus was without sin. He was the son of God and God the son, lived a sinless life and God charged the sin of the world against him and he died. The problem is sin. The solution is Jesus because of who he is and what he did. And the only response God is looking for is faith. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him, will not perish, but have eternal life. And so the bottom, bottom line again is that we can be saved because Jesus chose not to save himself. Two criminals received life, one eternal life and the other one physical life because Jesus chose to die and he offers us the same eternal life if we'll put our trust in Jesus Christ. 
By the way, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament prophesied that this would happen. 700 years before Jesus was born, in Isaiah 53, 12, we read, he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. He submitted to death, he was counted among rebels, among the sinners, yet he wasn't one. Instead, he bore the sin of many and he interceded for them. That's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Now, if you're already a Christian here today, I wanna give you a few applications to what I'm talking about. First of all, during this time of year, I just encourage you to have a really a profound appreciation for what Jesus did for you. This is a time in which the whole world is focusing on this event where the Son of God and God the Son died in our place and for our sin. Let's set aside time to enjoy him and worship him and appreciate him. Second, I remind us as believers in Christ that Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him. I believe that this is what our lives are all to be about as Christians is living for Christ. In, in whatever realm we find ourselves, in the workplace we live for Christ, in the home we live for Christ, and, and we're always trying to live for Christ. And then third, I feel this time of year especially is a great opportunity to invite people. And so I wanna encourage you again to, to get out word about our service next weekend where the gospel will be spread. We want people to hear the true message of Easter. It's not just a story, but Jesus died and rose again for us so that through him, everyone could have life. Finally, I wanna mention here today that it's possible that some of you today have never put your trust in Christ. You don't know where you stand with God. And maybe today you're understanding for the first time that, that you, you sin against God. You know that, that you've missed the mark and you realize that and maybe you've come to understand you can't fix it yourself and that Jesus was sent in this world specifically to die in our place and for our sin. On the cross, he was bearing the full penalty of everything you've done wrong. It was the justice of God poured out against Jesus because the justice of God, the holiness of God had to be satisfied. And Jesus died and was buried, but he rose again from the dead. It demonstrates that God accepted the payment on our behalf. And we're given this tremendous promise, as I referred to earlier, that whoever puts their trust in Jesus will have eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it's when we put our trust in Jesus to be our Savior, we receive life. And if you believe that today and understand what I'm talking about, I'm gonna close here this morning right now with a prayer. And I encourage you just to bow your head and pray this prayer with me. It's not the prayer itself that saves or delivers, it's the faith behind it. I'm encouraging you to say yes to Jesus to become your Savior. Why don't you pray with me? Father, I acknowledge I've sinned against you. I've, I've missed the mark. I blow it in many ways. And I cannot save myself. I need a savior, a deliverer. And I do believe that you've sent your son Jesus to die on the cross in my place and for the things that I've done wrong. And then he was buried, but then he rose again from the dead. That you accepted the payment he made on my behalf. And so today I wanna to put my trust in Jesus to be my savior. I wanna put my faith in him. I wanna receive him as my savior. Today I wanna to claim the promise that you gave in John 3, where God, you said, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. In this moment I put my trust in Jesus to be my savior. 
And I pray in Jesus' name and because of what he did for me. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me this morning, I encourage you to let us know. We have some booklets we would love to send to you that explain a little bit more what the Christian life is all about. And again, I invite you to join us next week and to invite other people to join us as well. Have a blessed week.